Uh, let me tell you about two Christians. Uh, the first is called, a man called Richard Semler. He's in his 70s now. He's never married. He lives in a tiny flat in Virginia in the US. He drives an old car. He lives simply. He makes extra money writing maths textbooks. He doesn't have much money, yet Richard Semler is an extraordinarily rich man. He doesn't live simply because he has to. What makes him exceptional is he chooses to live that way. He teaches calculus and algebra at a community college. He makes a good wage, more than 100000 a year, but for the last 35 years he's donated half his pre-tax salary to charity. At least. Last year it was 60000 By his count, he's given away more than $1 million. He doesn't just write a cheque, he stays involved. Uh, he says, most dollars go to very specific projects so that I know what I'm funding, I want to see my dollars at work. Uh, once a week, he serves dinner at the Central Union Mission, he offers free maths tutoring, uh, he serves on the board of Habitat for Humanity, he helps to build the, pa- the houses he donates towards. He's committed to seeing his money put to use. He's a good steward of all that God's given him. And he does it with a smile on his face. Uh, he's content. He's content with what he has. That is true riches. The second Christian I want to tell you about is a man called Creflo Dollar Jr. He's an American televangelist. If you've watched any early morning TV, you may have caught his show, You Can Change Your World. He wears grey silk suits, lots of jewellery, he travels in limousines and Learjets and he makes millions of dollars a year. He's recently announced plans to purchase a new $65 million Learjet so he can spread the good news better across the world. Dollar by name, dollar by nature. His trademark message is that God doesn't want you poor. He says that God wants Christians to have earthly riches. Listen to this quote from his website and I'll warn you up front, he uses the Bible but it has very little to do with what the Bible actually teaches. He says, you were made wealthy and rich before you came into existence. You've been predestined to prosper financially. According to Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, God chose to bless you before the foundation of the world as evidence of the holiness and righteousness made available to you through Jesus. Your inheritance of wealth and riches is included in your spiritual blessings. You have every right to live wealthy and possess material riches in abundance. The Bible says wealth is stored up for the righteous, Proverbs 13.22. However, it remains stored up until you claim it. Therefore, claim it now. You possess the right to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. Deuteronomy 8.18 Exercise that power by speaking faith-filled words daily and taking practical steps to eradicate debt. Like God, you can speak spiritual blessings into existence. Romans 4.17 Another extraordinary Christian, but for completely different reasons. Profit and riches, godliness. 
My guess is if, if you ask Creflo Dollar and Richard Semler how they understood those two sets of words, you would get completely different reactions. What does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be godly? Words mean different things for different people. And it's the same thing in our passage this morning. Paul and the false teachers. They're both using these words, riches and godliness, but they're defining them differently. We've already looked at how they understand godliness differently. Remember back in chapter 4, the false teachers thought godliness meant abstaining from things like food or alcohol or marriage, that God was impressed with rule-keeping. But Paul says that's not godliness, that's godlessness. Real godliness has value for all things. Real godliness, says Paul, is about setting an example in speech, life, love, faith, purity. 1 Timothy 4.8 Every part of your life. God is about, is concerned for far more than simply what you stick in your mouth. Uh, And here in chapter 6 there's more of the false teachers. Verse 3, they love quarrels. But the focus of the chapter is on their attitude to money. You see there in verse 5, they've been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Preaching produces profit. They think there's a profit to be made from teaching about godliness. But they're stealing from the sheep as they feed them rubbish. So Paul instead wants to redefine those words. Profit, gain and godliness. There in verse 6. Uh, Maddie focused on it in the kids' talk. It's the verse for the day. If you get nothing out of it, remember that little maths equation. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain, big profit, financial surplus. Godliness with contentment gives you profit. That's real profit. So in one sense he's agreeing with them. There is profit to be made in godliness. It's just not profit the way they understand it. And so for the rest of the chapter he wants to explain the right way to understand godliness and the right way to understand understand true benefit, true profit. For the false teachers of Paul's time, as well as for people today like Treflo Dollar, there's a close connection between being godly and material wealth. The theory was if you've got money in the bank, that must mean God is blessing you, therefore you must be godly. If God's blessing you, you must be godly. Paul sees three problems with that view. Firstly, earthly riches, they don't last. How will they really profit if you can't keep them? Verse 7, he quotes the well-known saying, we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. It doesn't matter how wealthy a corpse was, he still can't spend money when he's a corpse. A body in a $3,000 suit is still dead. A $1,000 coffin does the job just as well as a $20,000 one. We brought nothing in, we take nothing out. I mean, we know it with our heads, don't we? But it doesn't mean we listen to it. It doesn't mean we live it out. We may not fill our graves with treasures like the Egyptian pharaohs, but we might as well 
because we spend our lives collecting stuff just so we can pass it on to our kids who will then throw it out or sell it on eBay. It's fool's gold. It's chasing a mirage. It's a truth King Charlemagne Charles the Great for all his riches knew. It was a message that he took to the grave. Charlemagne was around in 800 AD. He was king of France. He seemed to have everything. One of his closest assistants wrote this description of him. He was six foot four, built to scale. He had blonde eyes, animated, uh, blonde hair, animated eyes, and a presence that was always stately and dignified. On top of that, he had more power than almost anyone and riches. Uh, He went to Rome on Christmas Day in uh, AD 800. There in a church, dressed in his finest purple, he received the name Charles the Great from the Pope uh, and was hailed and crowned the 68th Emperor of Rome. A few years later, in 814, he became ill and died within a week at the age of 72. He'd made all the arrangements for his burial. At his request, he was buried in the vault of the cathedral in Aix-la-Chapelle. His body was dressed in the imperial purple. He was seated on a throne inside the vault. A crown was placed on his head, a scepter in his hand, a sword by his side and an open Bible on his knees. And there the uh, the great emperor sat in all his glory and then the vault was closed and sealed. Uh, until nearly 200 years later in 997 when a German emperor, Otto III, opened the vault. He wanted the crown and the sword and the scepter. And there was Charlemagne's body just as he had been left. And there on his lap was the open Bible. But it wasn't open to a random passage. One bony finger pointed to Matthew 16:26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? yet forfeits his soul. I wonder what the German emperor thought of that message and whether he still took the sword and the crown. Charlemagne lived and died with the truth that we bring nothing in and we take nothing out. Earthly riches don't last, so why would we think of them as being God's reward? We know it with our heads, but does your life reflect that truth? Does your bank balance? Does your bank statement? Uh, If you had to prove to someone that you believe that you live this truth, what evidence would you present? Well, the second problem with chasing riches or with them being a sign of God's blessing is that they they lead to temptations. It's there in verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Maddie's kids' talk was great again, wasn't it? The, the devious trap is that the more things you have, the happier you'll be. The trap is in thinking that the more stuff you have, the more stability you'll have or the more success or comfort or happiness or acceptance or approval. The trap is thinking that things will satisfy you rather than God, who ultimately controls life. 
The desire to get rich means you're tempted to be greedy, to covet, to worship idols, to be selfish. But not only that, when you replace God, it's easy to let go of your faith. See verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. Loving money and riches and following Jesus don't go together. They're like oil and water. They don't mix. The third reason Paul says chasing riches is wrong is it leads to arrogance. Verse 17. Talking about Christians who are rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. The trap is that when you have plenty of things around you, you trust them rather than God and it's easy to become arrogant, to become proud. A story is told of Kerry Packer. He was holidaying in Queensland. He walked into a golf club. Uh, The girl at the front desk didn't know him and he said, I want to play golf here, so make me a member now. And he pulled out his wallet. But she politely told him it wasn't possible. There were limited membership applications. These things took time and so on. Well, Kerry Packer's not used to being spoken to like that. He demanded to see the manager who recognised him and bowed and scraped and apologised and he was made an honorary member on the spot. Now that's the sort of arrogance that you see from rich people. They expect to be treated in a certain way because they have stuff. It's no wonder that Paul says to wealthy Christians, get rid of that arrogance. It doesn't go with being a disciple of Jesus. Replace it instead with a godly humility. Pursue that. It's all these sorts of results that come from wanting to get rich that are the opposite of what's expected from God's people. All kinds of evil come from the love of money. And so it's no wonder Paul gives some pretty strong commands to Timothy about how he is to live instead. You see there in verse 11, but you, another big but. That's what the false teacher is doing, but you, Timothy, man of God, flee from this and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Those last two commands are in the context of fleeing earthly wealth and pursuing righteousness. It's a fight. It's difficult to do that. It's a battle to bin the catalogues when they come, to say no to upgrading, to keeping up with the Joneses. It's a battle to do that. Uh, This is to be an active, determined, daily, purposeful choice, to turn your back away from one sort of riches and to pursue another sort. We almost don't notice how rich we really are, do we, living in the inner west of Sydney, in Australia, one of the wealthiest countries in the world? We almost don't notice. We may not think we're wealthy because there are so many people around us who are more wealthy. 
but I've noticed it. Uh, having just got back from Thailand, and I, I think Sarah and Nora have noticed as well, uh, when we sit on a split bamboo floor of someone's shack, which is their home, and we sit there and we wonder whether we're going to fall through the floor and we look around us in the single room and we see all their earthly possessions, we can see right there in that room. And they're smiling. And they're telling us about Jesus. And we come back here and we think, oh, well, I'm not that wealthy. Oh, look at this person here or that person there. The reality is we are far wealthier than far more than 90% of the world's population. Flee. Flee and pursue righteousness, true riches, says Paul. So what does that look like? What does a lifestyle that flees riches and instead pursues godliness look like? Well, it looks a lot like Richard Semler, doesn't it? Uh, It looks a lot like what verses 6 to 8 are talking about. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. We have the choice every day, every paycheck, every bill, every TV advertisement, every catalogue, we have the choice of whether we're going to chase financial gain or instead whether we'll pursue the great gain that comes from being content. We have the choice of trusting in things or trusting in God. We have the choice of chasing financial security or eternal security. And Richard Semler's life reflects the truth that godliness with contentment is great fun. How are you doing at that? How content are you? If you had to list on your whiteboard the things that you want, what would your list have? If you're not content, what's your list say? What would it take for you to be content? Would more money do it? There are lots of things that more money can do for you, but making you content is not one of them. It never works. They did a survey of rich people. How much would you take to be content? And everyone, no matter how much they had, all said, just a little bit more. So how do you build contentment into your life? How can you learn to be content? Well, verse 11 focuses on godliness. A man should flee and instead pursue godliness. The things of God are the treasure that we should chase. Do you value the things of God? Are they the pearl of great price that you would give up everything for? That's the language Jesus uses. Fleeing those things that this world chases means not putting your hope in them, verse 17 says. Instead, we're to put our hope in God. We're to lean on him. We're to trust him. We're to trust him for our bills, trust him for our worries, trust him for our unanswered prayers. Trust him because he knows us better than we know ourselves. The measure to which you are content is the measure to which you're trusting God. 
contentment is an expression of faith. Contentment recognises that God is the loving, wise Father who looks after us. Do you see how God des- uh, Paul describes God in verse 17? This is the, the verse for us to, to keep in our minds about who is this God that we are treasuring. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Next time you're complaining, say that verse to yourself. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Make a list. Make a list of the things that you're thankful for. Pray them. That's the way to build contentment. Paul goes on to describe what it looks like, what contentment looks like. Verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. When you have learned the truth that God is the one who richly provides for you, you are set free to share. When you are content, you're free to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Contentment is the fuel that energises you to share and to be generous. If you're a rich person, apparently a Rolls Royce is a status symbol, the symbol that you've finally arrived. But do you know for the Christian, our status symbol is generosity, willingness to share. That's the mark of having arrived at contentment, at godliness with contentment. That's your status symbol, that you're generous. Well, finally, what's the great gain that Paul says if we are contentedly godly? What is this profit that we get by being contented? Well, there in verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. There's the great profit that comes from being godly and content. Treasure in heaven building rewards. As we walk each day with Jesus, as we fill our thoughts on him and on his priorities, as we learn about his kingdom, as we fix our mind on heavenly things, we actually begin to live the life that we were designed for. Do you see what verse 19 says? It says, laying up treasure for the coming age is about taking hold of the life That's truly life. When we set our thoughts on heavenly things, it doesn't make us useless for earthly things, it actually makes us of more earthly use because we begin to live the life that God designed for us, the taking hold of the life that is true life, ultimate life, real life, life which is far more true and real and ultimate than a life of cash or jewels. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Six words for you to dwell on this week. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Meditate on those this week and you'll begin to live the life that is truly life. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, fix our eyes on Jesus, on your kingdom, on true life. Teach us the truth that godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen.